Nice to see everyone. I was gone for uh, a little while. And you know what they say, absence makes the heart grow fonder. So I'm fonder of you. Are you fonder of me? All right. Uh, I know that some of you were praying and even fasting uh, for my time away uh, ministering. I went into this uh, big old conference in, in the Midwest. We had a blizzard. It was awesome. Uh, and uh, then when I come back, I, I you know, try to, to share a few stories um, uh, just so that you know uh, what Blue Water is, um, is a harvesting uh, out there uh, in the world. This was a, a conference that was on you know, life in the spirit, power ministry, and stuff like that. And I often get uh, called to these things to you know, practice healing and prophecy. This one had a, a real uh, prophetic bent uh, which I uh, appreciated. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite experiences while I was there after I, I spoke uh, uh, the, the first evening, I think it was, uh, jumped down into the prayer pit. I was praying for a bunch of people. And then toward the end, this guy walked up to me uh, with a few friends. And he said, you won't remember me, but I visited your church, Blue Water, in Honolulu eight years ago. I didn't remember him, but I didn't say that. I said, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> And he said, uh, you were in a gymnasium back then. I said, yes, we were. Uh, and uh, I remember I, I was sitting uh, in the congregation. You got up to preach, and then you interrupted yourself. And you had, you had a word from God, and you said, there's somebody here that is suffering from mental illness. You're on all sorts of medication, but today is the last day you're ever going to take medication. You're going to be healed uh, here on out. And he said, when you said it, you looked directly at me. I don't remember this, uh, but uh, I'm sure it was true. And then he said, I got up the next morning, and I stopped taking medication, and I've been completely healed ever since. Yeah, his name was Kevin, really cool guy, really cool. You know, so of course I gave him a hug, and I hugged his friends, and, uh, and I told him I appreciate it, because this is eight years after the fact, right? But he made a point to, like, track me down, like, come to the conference, come up. And uh, just tell me the story. Uh, it was just testifies to me. There's all sorts of things that go on in our life as we share blessings as best we can in the world. And you don't necessarily know the end of the story, right? Uh, but you just do what you do and trust uh, the Lord to be faithful and step out in faith and then wake up the next day and do it again uh, and occasionally get to hear the stories. I think probably that's kind of what the next life is going to be like. You know, I'll be kicking back on my porch in heaven and, and uh, people just come up and be like, oh, here's a story for you uh, that you didn't know about. I'll be like, here's a story for you that you didn't know about. Um, that would be uh, really cool. Um, the, uh, uh, I prayed, prayed for a gal, uh, maybe, maybe it was the second night or something, and uh, Jeannie Hughes had come to the conference. Jeannie is a Blue Water founder and she lives in the Midwest and she had showed up and so she joined me uh, in her prayer time. Always fun to pray with Jean. That's a bonus, right? Uh, bonus for me. So we were praying uh, for this uh, uh, older gal who walked up, and she was palsied. She was really shaking a lot. And uh, her daughter was holding her so that she could walk up to me and stand there. Uh, so I had some sort of neurological disorder, obviously. Her arms were shaking, her head was shaking, and she tried to talk to me, and I said, well, what do you want prayer for? And she said, the sh shaking to stop. Yeah. Uh, so I started praying for her, and um, 
for some reason, I felt led by the Spirit to have her do the drunk test. You know the drunk test where you close your eyes and you go like this? How many of you know the drunk test? <laughs> Come on. Uh, and so I tried to have her do that just because that came to me. And so she tried to do it and then just hit herself in the face every time she did it, just over and over again. So, okay, stop that. Uh, I just prayed for the spirit of, of self-control to come. I quoted that verse from Paul. You know, God didn't give you a spirit of, of, of fear, but a sound mind and self-control, power, you know. I just kept praying for that spirit of self-control. So Jeannie and I, you know, stayed with her for, you know, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and, and I just had her do this over and over again, and she went from hitting herself, and then she went, she could get it about here, and then she'd hit herself. And by the end, she was just, you know, doing this just fine. So that was cool. Then we prayed for her head to stop shaking, and then what else? My voice. We prayed for her voice to stop shaking, and she took a, a big breath. And by the end of it, she was actually quite calm and quite still, and and a little bit weak still, you know, we run out of time. Jeannie said, well, now it's muscle memory. Now you just have to practice being still and being in control, you know. And we set her on her way. Uh, I turned to her daughter and said, well, how does she look to you? And her daughter was like, well, she looks much, much stronger. How long has this shaking been bothering you? I asked her, how long since you could touch your nose with your finger? And she said, 68 years. Um, so, which is like, it's cool to be part of a blessing like that. But also cool to think that this woman had suffered with this for 68 years and was still like, I'm gonna go get fixed, right? And sort of the faith and the faithfulness that it took from, from that lady, right? Which is like this complete testimony to me of kind of the nature of faith and stick to You know, faith means trying. And very often faith means trying again. And trying again. Uh, she's a really cool lady. She came to a session that I did the following afternoon where I was just training some ministry team folks. And she came and sat in the front row and she sat really tall and really still as if to like just kind of show off, like, look what I can do, <laughs> which was cool. And then afterwards I said, hey, how are you feeling today? And she had a tablet and she turned it around and showed me that she had written notes. And she said, I haven't been able to write in like decades. You know, so she could write. Her handwriting was terrible, but uh, like she was taking notes and she was so proud that she could write because her hand is crazy before. So that's cool. And just, you know, her heart was so, so strong. Uh, I wanted to share this uh, before I jump into uh, what's going to be a very short sermon. Um, that uh, I had uh, in a worship time one night at the conference and... Uh, I was going to stand up to speak, and I was uh, asking the Lord, you know, for words of knowledge, like you, maybe you can tell me if there's somebody here who needs prayer for a particular thing, Lord, and the Lord spoke to me really powerfully, and it was, uh, without a doubt, like the strongest prophetic word I have gotten in the last two years, at least, you know, maybe even longer than that, and when the Spirit spoke it, I felt like it hit me in the chest, it sort of, uh, I felt it physically, and what the Lord said was that um, I want to release here in this place and around the country, because people came from all sorts of different states, you know, um, uh, what Blue Water does and what you have done, Jordan, in community houses, hospitality houses, right? And they just kind of had this vision. I mean, 
community houses have been such a huge part of Blue Water culture over the years and such a big part of the spirit of generosity uh, that we enjoy in this place. How many of you are living in a community house right now? Yeah. You know, and we probably have, uh, well, we used to have like five or six, right? And then COVID came and the, all this social justice brouhaha that we went through in the past few years. And so we lost almost all of them. Do I think the Lord wants to restore um, some of them for sure? Um, and a big part of my life, um, back in the early days when I was starting my ministry, I was living in community homes. What I mean is just people, Christians that rent a house together, kind of open the doors for people who need a place to stay for whatever reason. Maybe they just need some hospitality. Maybe they need to get off the street. But sort of experiencing life together in a spirit of generosity and with the power of community really distilled into a single household. Um, you guys know what I mean, probably. And if you're new to the church and you don't know, you'll learn pretty soon. Because um, you'll probably get invited to a community house for something before too long. Anyway, so I stood up and um, tried to uh, explain this idea of a community home in a church. Not a house church, like Sunday church in a house, in it, which I actually don't like. Um, because I think the body should be broad and varied. Um, but churches with community houses, right? Because I think that's really vital to the fabric of community. It might not sound like much of a word, but it hit me really strongly. And when I spoke it over the crowd, and there's hundreds and hundreds of people in the crowd, it's like groups of people just like, boom, just fell unconscious as I was speaking and just sort of knocked down by the power of the Spirit. Um, and I think what the Lord is doing is kind of a national movement of these houses. I think that's going to be a signature to the move of God in our country in the next uh, several years. Um, and uh, just to say that we have sown a lot in that ministry uh, at, at Blue Water over the years, and I think that too is going to bear fruit in ways that, is mis that are mysterious. Um, and I can't lead it because uh, I'm old and tired and stuff. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of you are called on to sort of foment this in different places around the country. And as the Lord called me to release that word in a semi-national gathering last week, I wanted to kind of release the word. I think that's my job, is to kind of release the word. That's kind of a Christian-y, prophetic-y way of saying, saying it. Um, but some of you may be called to participate. That's all I want to say about my trip. Thanks for your support. Um, got a haircut. Probably the worst haircut of my life. Uh, so I went to this, you know, discount haircutting chain like I usually do. And, you know, I wear my hair pretty shaggy, typically, right? Pretty shaggy. And, you know, it's, my bangs are usually down to about here. And so I go in and I say my typical thing. I said, well, just cut it like it is, but take off about half an inch, is what I said. And, uh, and so she grabbed my hair, and her first cut was at least two and a half inches, probably three inches. Just like, and I have this big gap right here. She just like, bam! I was like... And then, and then, she, and then of course, I mean, you have to even it out. At that point, it's done, right? So you have, you have to keep going. What bothered me about this um, wasn't so much how I look, because... As you may have guessed, I don't invest a lot in my appearance, right? Not, not vain that way. 
But what bothered me about the experience was just like, just the attitude of, of contempt that this gal manifested toward me, right? I'm not going to tell you her name. But like, she was like, as is often the case with these stylists, right? Like she was, she was like coiffed, like she had no hair out of place. She had on the false eyelashes. It was clear that she had on that makeup that you airbrush on, you know? And it's like, like she was done to the nines, as they used to say. But she like could barely be bothered to look at me. And she was like singing pop songs and stuff as she was cutting my hair. And it was like, she didn't care what I said, right? She didn't care what I wanted, and she didn't care how I looked when it was all over. But that's what bothered me, right? It's just sort of the spirit of, like, you're not very important to me, you know? Oh, uh, yeah, it just hurts. Not, not too much, actually. It's, I'll poke fun at myself, and it'll be fine. But even in a, a context of a haircut, which has zero eternal significance, right? Zero. My hair grows fast. It won't have any significance in another couple of weeks. Um, it, it rankles my spirit to have someone kind of treat me with contempt. You know, it's like, you just, you don't matter all that much, you know. Uh, and there are different names for it. But what I'd like to talk about today is kind of that spirit of contempt. But what I really want to talk about is this, the, the virtue of power which is usually how it manifests. My power over you, your power over me, their power over us. Um, so let's start by doing a faith declaration. I want you to turn to the people around you and be like, yeah, I'm pretty powerful. Go ahead, tell, tell people how, how much power you have. I'm pretty strong. And then I want to ask you a warm-up question. Here's a warm-up question. Audience participation. The question is, if you were king or queen of the world, if you were king or queen of the world, you're in charge of the world, you're in charge, what do you do? You're king, you're queen of the whole world, what do you do? Come on. Feed the people. So we're going to use our power to feed the people. Queen, uh, queen power is going to translating to feeding the people. What else? No more fighting. No more fighting. You're going to cause no more. How are you going to, how are you going to do that, king? You're just going to tell them to get along, <laughs> dot, 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 or else. They will, okay, so we're going to feed people, no more fighting. What else? You're king or queen? You're going to do nothing. I completely understand why Lee says that, because I know Lee and exactly what she's thinking. Yeah, right. Hire a castle cleaner. Yeah. <laughs> and immediately we go to the deep spiritual repercussions of our morning exploration. Rod. Going to get me a new haircut. Hire a better haircutter. Yeah. Hire a stylist for Jordan. Sure. One more. You're king or queen of the world. What are you going to do? Yes. Raise people up so they believe in themselves more. Right. How are you going to do that? That's really interesting. It's easy. She's queen. Snap her fingers. I like it. Well, you all have very selfless agendas, except for Rod, who probably needs to repent. 
Uh, it's compassion for me? Okay. So we're in this sermon series uh, called How to Help the Devil, and uh, we're exploring how, uh, how Satan does his job. The idea being that if we understand how he does his job, then we'll be better able to resist um, his schemes uh, against us. And Satan's number one trick is to get us to do destructive things that we think are virtuous things, right? Or to get us to do things in a destructive way, even though we think it's a good way uh, to do things. Uh, and we're told in Scripture that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Um, so he, he tricks you into thinking that you're virtuous, whereas in fact you're being narrow and negligent. He typically does this by getting us to focus on one virtue in exclusion of other virtues that are required to get us focused on one part of a virtue uh, and neglecting other parts of the virtue that make it healthy. It's a little bit like, as we have said, uh, eating spinach because it's really healthy, but not eating anything else at all. You could go a long way on spinach, but ultimately, if you only focus on eating spinach, you will get sick and die. Uh, God wants us to be integrated in our virtues. Integrated means all things working together, as opposed to disintegrated, which means separating things out, only focusing on one thing and letting the other parts slide. Uh, and we see this sort of disintegration overemphases at work in the arena of power all the time. What is power? Is it a virtue? I think it's a great virtue. Jesus tells us all the time that we are supposed to be powerful people, the salt of the earth, the light of the whole world. I mean, he makes these grandiose statements about his followers. We are supposed to be extremely powerful people. Power is essentially the capacity to get people to do what you want which can be a really, really good thing, you know, because we want to influence people toward good. We want them to do good things. We want them to believe in themselves. We want them to not fight. We want them to, to feed one another and to share, right? These are really, really good things. And to, to the degree that we can use our power to make that happen, that in and of itself is quite wonderful. Um, of course, the capacity to make people do what you want can also be used for evil, right? Uh, we can use power uh, for evil. Um, how might the devil use power to ruin people is today's question. How might the devil use your power to ruin you and to get you to ruin people? Or to put it in a slightly different fashion, how might the devil use your empowerment, which is a big word today, to get you to do ruinous things. Now, we obviously understand that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? That's a proverb that is very popular in our culture. So there are what we would call abuses of power that maybe we'd think uh, should be obvious, although <laughs> I think sometimes abuses of power are not as obvious to people uh, as people think. Um, but today we're going to ask for, ask after the subtler tricks of the devil, not the obvious tricks, right? If somebody tries to be an evil dictator in your life, you'll probably catch it. But what's the non-obvious way to trick Christians into using power to ruin people? What's the non-obvious way 
to trick Christians into using empowerment to ruin their own lives. So the, the conceit of the sermon series is that now I will talk to you as if I am a devil coach and you are my junior devils. I've been gone for a week. Um, and this is a trick I'm stealing from C.S. Lewis who wrote this wonderful book called The Screwtape Letters. And he wrote it in the voice of a senior devil uh, and the readers sort of fall into the, the character of the, of the junior devil, the trainee the devil. So, um, so I'm kind of doing that, treating you like trainee devils. And, and I'm going to teach you how to use power to ruin people. I'm going to teach you how to manifest in little ways that spirit of contempt that makes all the difference for us devils. You understand? Are you ready? As a devil, uh, one of the, my, my uh, favorite, most interesting, and in some ways uh, least favorite and most threatening stories in Scripture uh, comes from the life of David, who was a king over Israel in a time in which uh, the, the idea of having a king in Israel was brand new. There was this King Saul um, before David. He didn't do so well. And then David became king, and he was a very popular king in Israel. You guys heard about King David? All devils should know scripture really, really well. Um, when uh, the Israelites requested a king, like the other nations have, God really tried hard to argue them out of it through the prophets. Like, you don't want anyone lording it over you. It will not go well in the long run, God said to them. And they were like, no, no, give us a king. So they got Saul, who was this impressive, tall, impressive-looking guy, and, and he ended up being kind of disastrous. So David becomes king after a lot of struggle. And David uh, was a godly man, although he had his hits and misses, and sometimes we devils could get to him a good way. Uh, so what I want to read is a story from the book of First Chronicles, chapter 21, 1 through 27. is kind of a longish passage. We'll get through it. And this is a story about King David taking a census in Israel. He's, all he's doing is he's counting people in the tribes of Israel. Uh, the context is this. In case you have not taken the Bible overview series and do not know the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the context is this. Uh, the book of Chronicles is sort of historical accounts of the development of the nation of Israel. And as Israel sort of came into the promised land and got going there, they were surrounded by enemy tribes who pretty constantly waged war against them. Uh, ultimately, uh, Israel would make peace with some of these tribes and, and, and develop healthy relationships with them. In chapter 19 of First Chronicles, so a couple chapters before our story, um, a king of um, the uh, Ammonites has died, and David had friendly relationship with the Ammonites, so he sends a, a group of messengers to communicate sorrow and grief at the passing of his friend, the king of the Ammonites. Uh, the new king uh, decides to humiliate those messengers because he thinks that David is trying to humiliate him. It goes very, very badly. It ends up with the Ammonites uh, waging war against the Israelites. But, but because uh, they know it's going to be tricky, they spend huge amounts of gold into hiring a mercenary army uh, to help them from Aram, the Aramenians. Uh, and so what happens is that when the Israelite army goes out to battle, the Ammonites attack them from one direction, and then the huge Aramenian mercenary army attacks them from the rear. So they get surrounded, surrounded, 
Uh, Israel has a great commander named Joab who calls on the Lord and the Lord's wisdom. And they end up surviving, winning the day, and sort of kicking the akole of the Ammonites and the Arameans. And so it ends up being a, a victory uh, for Israel, but it rattles David, right? Because it was a near thing. Uh, and then in chapter uh, 20, David cleans house. He attacks the Philistine outposts in the land. He's like, like that, we were almost entirely destroyed because I wasn't watching carefully enough the schemes of the enemies around us. And so he cleans house, sort of institutes military security. And in chapter 21, when he takes a census, this is what people sometimes don't understand about the story. He means to institute a draft. See, previously in the nation, what would happen is that when David blew the horn, we need to go to war, all of the tribes would voluntarily send healthy young men to help him fight. And David's like, well, I need to be a bit more organized about this because threats can pop up even among friendly people that you think you can count on. That's the backdrop to the story. Satan rose up against Israel. Woohoo! So it starts with a highlight. Satan rises up against Israel and incited David to take a census. Census, satanic attacks. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan, then report back to me so that I might know how many there are. But Joab replied, Joab, not the godliest character. He's a hard-bitten soldierly type. But Joab replied, may the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over, my Lord the king. Are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? Such an interesting response. So right away, this hard-bitten, soldierly, marginally godly guy named Joab recognizes that this is not good. Just tells you how ideas of government and organization have changed over the centuries. You know, oh, census, like, I, I don't like where this is going, King David. The king's word, however, overruled Job. Boom! Power. Power. Always a good thing in devilish hands. So Job left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. Job reported the number of the fighting men to David. This indicates that David was thinking about a draft, right? In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who could handle a sword, including 470,000 in Judah, just like southern Israel. But Job, Job did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command was repulsive to him. This command was also evil in the sight of God. So he punished Israel. Then David said to God, uh, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. The Lord said to Gad, who's a prophet, David's seer, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Take your choice, David. Three years of famine, three months of being swept away before your enemies with their swords overtaking you, or three days of the sword of the Lord 
days of plague in the land with the angel of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel through this great plague. Now then, decide how I should answer the one who sent me, says Gad. David said to Gad, I'm in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. This is clever. David has not totally lost his mind, unfortunately. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem itself. Oh, we were so close. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was destroying the people, enough, withdraw your hand. So David had called it right. It's like, uh, the Lord's going to be merciful. I know him. So, um, and so the Lord punishes, but sort of uh, relents a little bit at the end. The angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Arauna, the, the Jebusite, David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand. It extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell face down. This is the most supernatural experience David ever had, according to the biblical record. David, uh, David said to God, Was it not I who ordered the fighting men be counted? I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have you done? O Lord, my God, let your hand fall upon me and my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. So David makes himself vulnerable. Dang it. He was doing so well. And then he decided to get all humble. Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up to and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. What does this threshing floor site eventually become an Orion. Bible dude. I don't know. <laughs> the temple. Yeah, the site of the temple. This great merciful sacrifice. I'm just going to our Bible students. I bet you did know that, actually. Um, so David went up in obedience to the word of God. had spoken in the name of the Lord, and while Arona was threshing wheat, he turned and saw his angels, four sons who were with him, hid themselves. Angels are scary. Then David approached, and when Arona looked and saw him, he left the threshing floor, bowed down before David with his face to the ground. David said to him, let me have the sight of your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord, then that the plague on the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at the full price. And Arana said to David, take it, my Lord. Let my Lord the king do whatever pleases him. Look, I will even give you oxen for the burnt offerings, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give all of this. But King David replied to Arona, no, I insist on paying the full price. I want to sacrifice into this. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. Again, vulnerability. Dang it. So David put Arana six, paid him 600 shekels of gold, which is a huge sum of money. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord, and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. Again, the most supernatural experience in the life of David. Then the Lord spoke to the angel and put his sword back, and he put his sword back in his sheath. And that was the end of, of the plague. 
Um, this is a long meditation on power uh, and when it can work for the devil and unfortunately when it can work for God and God's people. David did this census. He took control for good reasons, for security's sake, because his nation almost got wiped out. I mean, he was scared. He was rattled. He was trying to protect his people, and that's how we got him. That's how we got him. We got him to focus on that virtue, security and protection, and then tempted him to use power in a way that was controlling, that had an edge of contempt on it. Because now he was saying to people, now you will risk your life for me or else because I'm king. As opposed to, hey, if you follow me, you know, if you want to follow me, send people. It was now like, you will send people because I'm king. Do you see the difference there? And that was all it took to get into a really evil area. But remember, he did it because he wanted to protect his people. You see how this works? There was a great devilish trick going on there. And dang, if we almost didn't pull it off. Uh, what David did was utterly justifiable and totally evil. It was dishonoring of people, of his people, the, one that, the ones that he was caring for. It was belittling of them. And God was super upset. Think about all the times in the Old Testament and the New Testament where God is just gracious and generous. And it's like, hey, man, that's not right. Come on, back up. And, and this one, he was like, the hammer will fall. Because this spirit, even though you think it's justifiable, is so bad that I'm going to do something that's absolutely devastating. I will punish you, which is not actually God's normal reaction uh, to such things. Why? Well, because it was controlling, which means it was contemptuous, contempt in it, which is the very spirit of murder. Right? It's like your life does not count as much as mine. You know, your life really not as important as other things, which is the genesis of murder uh, in every instance. People fail to realize how absolutely murderous that spirit of contempt is. And we can use that, devils. We can use that. You know, Jesus was on and on about don't judge people. Do not consider yourself better than others. Consider others better than yourself. Like he was a zealot when it came to eradicating the spirit of control and contempt in culture. And Christians don't understand how serious it is. So we can use that. We can use it. It doesn't take much. It can even seem really virtuous and justifiable. Right? But this story makes clear how serious God takes it. So I would like to edit this story out of Scripture. God was super upset. He considered this a huge, huge sin. Um, reminds me of another story from Mark chapter 10. If we can just kind of read this real quick. A meditation that Jesus gave uh, his disciples uh, about power. I was going to read verse 35 to 45 really quickly. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, the disciples, came to him, Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Your children ever say that to you? You remember saying that to your parents? 
If I ask you for something, do you promise to give it to me? What that is, is a very juvenile attempt at control. Right? That sort of controlling spirit can just kind of leap out. Uh, we want you to do whatever we ask, whatever we ask, you know, and it kind of, um, well, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. He's not going to fall into that trap. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other on your left in your glory. Give us seats of honor and power with you, Lord. Uh, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or the baptism or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Jesus knew the suffering that was ahead. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, well, actually, you will. You will drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. They would suffer greatly for the gospel, both of them. James was the first disciple to be martyred. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And when the other disciples, the ten, heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, the non-believers, lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Uh, Jesus might have been thinking about these stories from the Old Testament and David's excesses. Um, Saul, the other kingly excesses. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. When you first heard the gospel, did the person witnessing to you say, hey, come be a slave? Because that would have gone over really well. The servant of all. For even the Son of Man, even Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, a lot of people already know that verse. It's one of those memory verses. Uh, Jesus insisted that to the degree you use power, you use it to serve people and not to lord it over people, not to control people. You know, there is zero contempt, zero control in the way that God wields power and Jesus wields power, zero. Even God gives you freedom of choice and maneuvering and he's the king of everything. And Jesus came not to lord it over anyone or to control anyone, but to invite and to serve. Completely different spirit in Christian power. Completely different spirit, right? Um, you know, Jesus was never like, you're a sinner! But he was often like, God has better plans for you. You know, I see the better you. Let me invite you uh, to something higher. And Jesus' way honored people rather than holding them in contempt and making them feel small. Um, if you've ever traveled maybe outside the U.S. and other places in the world, I mean, not as a tourist, but actually traveled in those places, you'll know that in our country uh, we have uh, actually a, a culture that is, is not as power-oriented as in other places. We are far less classes, far less power-oriented. You feel it sometimes when you go to other places. Jesus and the boys existing in a very power-oriented culture. We mostly have alternative power culture uh, in the United States uh, where we do our devilish business. Um, you know, we have legal power and rights or consumer ethics 
you know, which should govern haircuts, by the way. <laughs> uh, and we have the power of religion, moral power that we can wield against people to manipulate them and control them and make them feel small. You know, so there are different ways to exercise power, not just uh, blatant ones. It's hard to get power right because influence is necessary, but control isn't. We want to influence people, but we can't allow ourselves to control and manipulate people. Um, uh, if we want to be healthy, of course, devils do not want to be healthy. So what's the devilish trick? We'll just sort of end with this. What's the devilish trick that we want to push people toward, my young protégés? Uh, and it has to do with the temptation to control others in any way whether it's through moral authority or emotional manipulation or legal manipulation or, or whatever. The temptation to control. God refuses to control. The spirit of God is the spirit of self-control, which is what I prayed over that woman who was suffering from palsy at that conference. We devils want to control people. God wants to give people self-control. And that is a great way to summarize the kingdom of the devil versus the kingdom of God. We devils want to control people. God wants to give people back their self-control. He wants them to be full humans, dignified creatures in the universe. To build up instead of manage and make small. And... Uh, just bear that in mind, because the line between being an influencer and being a controller is a very blurry line. And we devils can use that all the time. We can drift into a manipulation. Control is always devilish. All right. That ends my devilry. We kind of ran out of time uh, today, but if there were one word that I think encapsulates nicely this idea of Christian non-controlling influence, I think it would be the word incarnation, right? Jesus, authority over everything, incarnated, became us, became us, entered into our weakness rather than exercising his strength and control. And in our weakness, he manifested godly strength, incarnation. I think community houses are often about incarnation, right? Because it's about making your life vulnerable to somebody else's life, becoming them, right? Just sort of what incarnation means. I think Blue Water historically does this really well. Uh, but I just want to make sure that in this age of all manner of control and shaming and manipulation and, and judgment that we understand that the power of God is non-controlling. The power of God dignifies and does not diminish. And maybe some of you today are just getting your brain around that for the first time. Maybe you're checking out God for the first time. And maybe somebody has told you that God is actually dictatorial. No, 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 you have not read the Bible. Right? God is the opposite of dictatorial. And Jesus' humble servant life and death is all about demonstrating that. God would rather die than make a puppet out of you. God would rather die than pressure you. But he invites you. 
and maybe today you would consider accepting the invitation. That is a Lord who will not lord it over me. That's the point. Well, Father God, I pray that you would perfect your agenda for every person here. I pray that you would lift us up in power while simmering us down as servants. I pray, Lord, that Blue Water Mission would typify incarnational Christ, that we would dignify everyone around us at all times, even as we change them for the better, that we would be the light of the world, but in a way uh, that spreads grace uh, rather than shame. In Jesus' name, everybody says amen. We are dead out of time, so can I have the prayer ministry team come forward, please? And if you've come today with a need for healing in your bodies or some prophetic word to be released in your life, some direction that you need or some breakthrough, come forward right now, and these guys will lay a hand on your shoulder and invite the Holy Spirit to come and to do something supernatural for you before you leave the room. We have lots of supernatural stories of people encountering the powerful God who does not lord it over anyone. Stand with me as we dismiss. I thank you, Lord, with a great gratitude uh, that you make us powerful people. I bless you, brothers and sisters, to go from strength to strength, as it says in Psalm 84, to go from power to power, to be ever more powerful this week, this month, this year, and this age. But I bless you, brothers and sisters, to be vessels of grace and true freedom the freedom that Christ typified in the world. I bless you with the spirit of self-control and, and uh, charge you to spread it to others in Jesus' name. Everybody says, come forward and get prayer, guys.